And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Sam Khan. I'm an associate editor of Persuasion. I wrote my recent piece, How Not to Cancel Russia, in response to one of these hot-button culture wars controversies, which is that Elizabeth Gilbert had announced the publication of a novel and then canceled the novel a week later because the setting is Siberia, and Siberia is in Russia. It's an absurd thing, a sort of clear excess of cancel culture, and Gilbert has been roundly condemned for not sticking to her guns. But with this piece, I wanted to go a little deeper and explore something that has been bothering me. I do think it is very important to culturally punish Russia for the Ukraine war, but somehow that needs to be done without a corresponding idea that all Russians are irredeemable or that Russian culture is inextricable from Putinism. It's a thorny topic, but I think very important to figuring out a long-term approach to confronting Russia. Thank you for reading. Sam Khan's piece called How Not to Cancel Russia was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is somebody who I have read and admired for a very long time. Michael Walzer is one of the most distinguished political philosophers of the 20th century. Born in 1935, he has been a professor at Harvard University and the Institutes for Advanced Studies in Princeton. He's published, I believe, 27 books and has been an editor for many decades of the magazine Descent. We talked about just about everything. We talked about the meaning of equality. We discussed his ideas of spheres of justice and how they can explain what is wrong with a world in which money is dominant, but also why there are certain forms of financial inequality that even though he thinks himself as a democratic socialist, we don't need to worry about overly much. We discussed the differences between the philosophical traditions of liberalism and communitarianism. We fought through the criticisms of liberalism from the so-called post-liberals on the American right. And we tried to get our grips on the liberal temptations on the left, which have always characterized part of the movement, but seem to be particularly strong today. Michael Wolzer, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. You know, I've been reading your work and grappling with your work since I've been an undergraduate. And so I'm really looking forward to an opportunity to grilling you about all kinds of different questions. One part of your work that is well known, but not the best well known, is my sense, is your very interesting sense of what equality is really about. And I think so many political debates and discussions are about the question of equality. And so often, Part of the nature of those debates is different ideas of what we actually mean by equality, but it's always helpful to actually step back and try to think about that for a moment. So in Spheres of Justice, you argue that the way to think about distributive justice in particular is to recognize that there's kind of different kinds of goods for which different kinds of distributive mechanisms are appropriate. And the real injustice comes from one of these realms becoming dominant and being able to be translated into everything else. Can you walk us through that a little bit? What do you think is the danger of this kind of dominance and how does that help us understand what we should care about in distributive justice? Right. Well, first of all, equality across a social society doesn't consist of sameness or an equality of power or an equality of resources. If you think about the political system, we have a mechanism called elections for producing inequality, radical inequality. Some people win, some people lose. Some people have a lot of power. Some people have far less power. And many of us are just watching. And yet the distributive system, if the elections are free and fair, and if the right of opposition is safeguarded, the resulting inequality is okay. The distribution of medical care should go to the people who are sick or most sick. That seems a natural way of distributing medical care, even though it means that 
Some people get more if they need it, and some people get less if they don't. Maybe even if they are hypochondriac, they might still get less. Right. It would be bizarre for somebody who's healthy to say there's a great injustice in our society because we've spent, you know, $10,000 of social resources on your health this year and, you know, $0 on me. That's appropriate in the nature of a thing. And the problem, what makes for injustice is not inequality in political power or inequality in the distribution of health care or welfare or education. It is when these distributions don't take place for the right reasons and through the right procedures. It's when you get more health care than I do because you have more money than I do. You have taken success in the market and you have bought health care or elite positions for your children in the country's universities or political influence. It's the use of one social good, which may be rightly possessed, to claim many other social goods that ought to be distributed differently. That's the argument. So it's an argument that depends on what social goods, the goods we distribute, mean to the people who make them and share them. And those meanings may be different in different societies. One of the things that I find very elegant and clarifying about this argument is that it explains, I think, a core concern that the left rightly has about contemporary capitalist societies, which is that money is dominant in that kind of way, and that being rich doesn't just buy you a nicer watch or a greater number of Rolexes than somebody else. It also buys you better healthcare, better access to education, better access to opportunities for your children, higher likelihood of winning political office, and all of these other kinds of things where money doesn't feel like the rightful metric. But the same kind of schema of explanation also is able to tell us what is wrong with theocratic societies or aristocratic societies or all kinds of other societies. So how should we think about this general tendency towards domination in which today the dominant currency is money, but at other times it might have been you know, the honor of the noble born or the people who claim to have greater religious enlightenment or various other kinds of metrics? Yes. In the Soviet Union, in a much in the near contemporary society, it was political power and membership in the Communist Party, which got you better health care, a dasha in the countryside, and all kinds of other privileges. So, yes, it is a tendency. I think in democratic societies, there are ways to resist the tendency. Civil service examinations were a way to resist the tendency toward upper-class nepotism in our government. The banning of bribery, you can't buy votes. All of these are efforts to control the convertibility of, in our case, of money to take over all other goods. I think it's important to notice that a lot hangs in this argument on the view that we have of social goods. I was called a relativist because of making this argument, but I have a favorite illustration of it. In the Middle Ages, eternity was thought to be a high value, longevity radically undervalued, and the way to achieve eternity was through faith, through the mechanisms of the church, distributed by the ecclesiastical hierarchy. And then over time, eternity faded as a beginning, I think, with Descartes' famous statement that a long life is a great benefit. Eternity faded as a human desire. Longevity became increasingly important, and because of longevity, we began to establish public health. And not yet in the United States, but in most other Western countries, a national health service. We made health care a good that could no longer depend on religious faith or on noble birth or on financial capacity. It wasn't like that everywhere. And I don't think the distribution of eternity was necessarily unjust. 
<laughs> it's interesting that this is what was controversial about the argument. I think that maybe partially a matter of what's controversial among political theorists rather than a wider political public. But what always struck me as interesting about this argument is that you're a democratic socialist. I believe you would still call yourself that. And you were the editor for many, many years of Dissent, which is a distinguished left-wing magazine in the United States. But the implication of this argument about the spheres of justice for material equality, I think are both powerful and plausible, but run up a little bit against some of the instincts of the left. It's tempting to say for the left, you know, what we want is a society where the Gini coefficient is as high as possible, right? Where sort of you look at people's wages and they're as similar to each other as possible. So we can just judge society by the incomes or perhaps the wealth of different people in the society is. And now one kind of challenge to that in the last 50 years in political philosophy has been from libertarians like Robert Nozick, who say, well, the history of how these distributions come about is also important, right? It's not just about the end state. It's also about you know, if people start with equal endowments and then they trade freely and one person becomes much better off because everybody goes to see one basketball player, that's fine, right? But it seems to me that you, in a way, had a challenge to that idea that is just as powerful, which is to say that the problem is not even that you have radical inequality in a certain realm of goods, right? When we're in the realm of relative luxury goods, when we're in the realm of, you know, who gets to go to the fanciest restaurant and who doesn't, or, you know, how luxurious is the life of certain kinds of billionaires, within your theory, that doesn't necessarily matter as long as you have a social institutions to ensure that the sick get the best quality healthcare, respective of who they are, that the people who get into the best universities and getting there because of that. Now, of course, there may be a second order argument where you're saying once you have material inequality that's too high, it's not going to be able to give it kind of dominance at bay. But at least at first sight, this argument is quite radical in both asking for a lot of areas of society to be taken out of the realm of what money decides, but also in being compatible with quite a lot of material inequality within the realm of things that rightfully may be decided by money. Right. It doesn't bother me if you can collect rare books and I can't, or if you can take a month's vacation and I just get two weeks, or you can go to some fancy spa and I can't. No, that doesn't bother me. It's when your wealth matters in every other sphere of activity, and right now, crucially, in politics. It's when your wealth can buy a senator or a judge or simply a bill, a law, or an exemption from a law. All of that I want to rule out. And so it has never bothered me. And I don't think it's crucial to a socialist or social democratic society that someone who has an economic green thumb or some entrepreneur who invents some machine that people enjoy using, that they make more money than I make. It's what they can do with the money. That's what matters. How do you think about meritocracy within this scheme? You know, meritocracy is a sort of founding ideal of the modern world. It has, in important ways, been a left-wing ideal, but it's recently come under quite concerted attack on the American left in particular, but a little bit more broadly as well. And some of it is for understandable reasons, but there does seem to be a kind of meritocratic elite in the United States that I would argue is not always in fact a meritocratic elite, is often a false meritocratic elite, but I would argue that it's not always a true meritocratic elite, that some of the problems that uh, some of the critics of meritocracy point to are in fact the problems of people who are in august positions because of who their parents are or because of the kind of advantages they've had in life, but then they have a sort of false sense of desert that comes from that. But nevertheless, I do think that there is you know, some reason to be concerned about the sort of broader social world that meritocracy has created, including the uh, not very solidaristic attitudes that educational elites in the United States and other Western democracies have often adopted towards people who are less well-educated, who are less in the scheme of the idea, quote-unquote, meritorious. 
So do you see meritocracy as a crucial bulwark against the dominance of money? Or do you think it has effectively become corrupted by money in such a way that the ideal is not worth upholding at this point? Well, the career open to talents was a revolutionary slogan. And in many parts of the world, it probably still is. The difficulty with meritocracy is that we allow the merits of the meritocracy to extend beyond the offices or the duties or the professions to which they pertain. Meritocracy produces what Shakespeare called the arrogance of office. People who hold high positions in government have come to expect or in the professions have come to expect that they will pass on these positions to their children as they usually are able to do. They will experience the benefits of their office in other spheres of activity. We need to create a meritocracy where the privileges that go with merit have to do only with the exercise of the office to which the merit is directly related. So we're probably only at the beginning of the creation of a new kind of elite, but already we are witnessing its presumption, its arrogance, and its ability to uh, sustain itself across generations. It's really, I think, an illustration of how fecund this conceptual scheme is that It provides a very nice framework to express what I have thought for a long time about meritocracy, that one of the problems in our society is that when you don't win the race to the top, you often don't have a very decent life. One of the things that a good society does is to make sure that everybody has the things you need to lead a decent life, whether or not you get into the best school and have the highest kind of positions. And another problem is that the members of this meritocratic elite can then abrogate themselves goods to which they shouldn't rightfully be entitled, like the fact that it makes it easy for their kids to come and become members of the meritocratic elite and get into the right colleges and so on. So those are elements of sort of the broader pseudo-meritocratic world of today's America that are worth criticizing, but principle that underlies it, as you argue, I think is very worth defending. And there's something quite short-sighted about jettisoning it. I have another question, which is about capital L liberalism. The first question I suppose I have before we get to some of the attacks on liberalism today from both the left and the right is your own understanding of liberalism. On the one hand, you are in the tradition of a democratic socialist, and unlike some other people who use that term, you always understood that that is a label that needs to be earned by very clear an explicit rejection of the illiberal sorts of socialism that have dominated much of 20th century history. So it seems to me that something about what it is to be a democratic socialist in the Volzarian tradition is to be a liberal. But on the other hand, you're also known as a communitarian, as somebody who within a kind of certain intramural debates between political philosophers in the Anglosphere and the latter half of the 20th century was classed in opposition to liberals. So are you a liberal? And if so, in what sense are you a liberal? Well, I am a liberal Democrat, a liberal socialist, a liberal nationalist or Zionist or liberal patriot in this country. I am a liberal Jew. And all of those categories seem to me to be in trouble in different parts of the world today. Liberalism, well, as I say in the book, I'm not sure what that means anymore. In this country, it means New Deal liberalism. If it means New Deal liberalism, then that's simply our modest version of social democracy. And it would be better if we were able to call it that. Bob Nozick's libertarianism might also be called a kind of liberalism. His, by the way, was very radical. And you know, I taught a course with him called Socialism and Capitalism, which was a semester-long debate in which I heard him say that he thought a revolution would be justified to establish capitalism in this country. 
given his version of what capitalism was, it would in fact take a revolution to do that. So libertarianism can be a very radical version of liberalism, or it can be, as it is in the European right today, a very conservative version. So I prefer to talk about liberal somethings and to identify myself that way. And being a liberal Democrat means accepting the notion that a majority cannot do anything it wants to do, that there are restraints based on human rights or civil liberties, and that those restraints extend to the right of opposition and the plurality of parties or social movements. So that's what I mean when I call myself, I am a liberal, I'm a liberal communitarian. (laughs) But it's an adjectival qualification of another commitment. So for people who didn't read the copious literature about this and political theory in the 1990s and so on, what is at the heart of the debate between liberals and communitarians? And therefore, what is the significance of you choosing this semi-middle way where your primary identification is as a communitarian, but perhaps unlike certain other communitarians, you qualify it with the adjective liberal. What's at stake in this debate for people who you know, haven't taken an intro to political theory? Well, first of all, there are two versions of communitarianism. One version is straightforwardly Rousseauian. It aims to create a community like the community that Rousseau describes in the social contract or in the constitution of Poland, a very hot community where, as he says, Polish children study Polish history, Polish literature, Polish geography, and nothing else. And that makes them intense members of this community. And some of the American communitarians had version of an American republic looking back to Tocqueville's description or what America was like in the 1840s. That was never my view of communitarianism. I was never sympathetic to that. I would prefer liberal democracy or liberal social democracy to a Rousseauian community. But the other kind of communitarianism stresses the smaller communities that exist within a liberal democratic framework. And in that sense, I guess I am a communitarian social democrat because I belong to a community of social democrats in the United States, an embattled community, perhaps. But the dissent was not only a magazine, it was a, a fellowship. And I am a Jewish communitarian in the United States, valuing the traditions of my community and the sense of membership, of belonging to it, the commitment to people who laugh at my jokes, which is a communal commitment. <laughs> So I imagine a liberal democratic or social democratic framework within which there are more and less intense communities. And that was always my communitarianism. And so it is already a liberal version of communitarianism. I think I may be realizing that if you're a liberal communitarian, then perhaps I'm a communitarian liberal, because to try to go through a similar exercise on the liberal side, you know, there is a kind of perfectionist liberalism, which is to say there is a kind of liberalism which doesn't just say that the fundamental building block of our political society is individuals with their rights and duties, but that the best kind of way to live is reasonably secular, that we should be skeptical towards religious associations, that there's something, you know, that the best kind of society would be one which people are individually self-creating and which they figure out at the age of 18 what the life plan is and they go in pursuit of that without necessarily staying embedded in the kind of networks in which they grow up. I think that is a mistaken kind of liberalism because it is privileging one vision of what life is like and what a worthwhile idea of what to do with your life is, that should certainly be available to people within a free society, but that certainly doesn't need to be dominant. And so, you know, my understanding of liberalism is one in which the fundamental 
liberal rights that people have always fought for is recognized as always having served the maintenance of different communities. Why is it particularly important to have free speech? Why is it particularly important to have freedom of worship? Why is it particularly important to have freedom of assembly? Well, because we recognize that the membership in and the maintenance of various kinds of religious and philosophical and political communities, cultural communities as well, is one of the most important things to human beings. And the reason why we value those rights more than others is that so many of our fellow citizens give great importance to those communities. But to me, the value of those communities is never constitutive of a political society. Politics is not an association of those associations. It is a collection of individuals' rights and duties, and we have respect towards those communities because these people freely choose to remain member of them. They would have the liberty to leave them even if they didn't choose to become members of them at 18 in some kind of strange, abstract way. So I guess, do you think that qualifies as a communitarian liberalism? And if so, is that just the difference of emphasis or is there real daylight between your liberal communitarianism and my communitarian liberalism? Not much daylight, but your description does raise the crucial question of this liberal democratic society of which we are all citizens, and then the smaller communities that we recognize and value because they are valuable to their members. But what are the limits we impose on those communities in the name of democratic citizenship? Do we tolerate communities that radically subordinate women? Do we tolerate communities that educate boys and girls in different ways? I have tried to find my way through that maze. Those are difficulties. Susan Oaken, who was a student and a friend of mine, wrote a very famous essay called Is Multiculturalism Bad for Women? in which he argues that it was insofar as it involves the acceptance of, in our case, primarily religious communities, which subordinate women in radical ways. And I'm a very strong believer in the refusal of the liberal state to accept educational systems which do not include an education for citizenship. I think the liberal state can impose a curriculum or part of a curriculum on, let's say, parochial schools, requiring these schools to teach American history and democratic politics and to teach it seriously, not with a wink and a nod, as if this isn't important. So those kinds of questions are the questions that liberal communitarians or communitarian liberals will have to face. And I think there were times when the politics of difference or radical communitarianism went the wrong way in accepting communities that are oppressive to some of its members. But on the other hand, I had an argument with Susan Oaken. She thought that America should deny tax exemption to religious organizations like Catholic Church that doesn't allow women to become priests or like ultra-Orthodox or Orthodox Jew synagogues that don't allow women to become rabbis. She thought the tax exemption shouldn't extend to organizations like that. And I thought maybe maybe that's a concession we can make to difference. So in a way, this places us in the middle of what feels like one of the most lively debates about liberalism and perhaps about political philosophy today, which is the rise of the post-liberals. I'd like to come back later in the conversation to whether there is a sort of far rejection of liberalism on parts of the left today, but there is certainly a very explicit rejection of liberalism on parts of the philosophical right with people like Patrick Deneen, but also on parts of the political right. And part of what sort of right-wing critics of liberalism would argue is that something like Susan Oaken's position de facto always ends up being how liberal societies work, that they pretend to be neutral and they pretend to be universal and they pretend to allow people who are religious 
to go through their lives with freedom of conscience. But in reality, they structure public education and public discourse and cultural institutions in such a way that they promote an attack on religion and on traditional values. So as I understand it, and I'm ventriloquating a position I don't agree with here, the thought is that the promise of equality and toleration towards more traditional conceptions of religion or the good life within liberalism is always a false one. And therefore, anybody who cares about religion or anybody who cares about certain kinds of traditional values needs to, in the language of Robert Nozick, have a revolutionary overthrow of that regime in order to allow people to maintain it. How do you understand the nature of this critique and what would your response to it be? First of all, on the issue of public education and religion, I think we have gone quite far in allowing religious communities to create parochial schools and private schools. We have allowed the Amish to uh, take their kids out of school before the legal school-leaving age. We have allowed the Haredim in Kiryas Yoel, 50 miles north of New York, to run a public school system according to their own lights. We have been remarkably tolerant. And what has to be understood is simply the fact that these children are going to grow up to vote in our elections. And so we, the citizens of the democratic state, have an interest in their education. It's not an exclusive interest. It leaves a lot of room for parental decision-making. But we do have an interest that they grow up to know something about what it means to be the citizen of a democracy. And if that challenges some religious beliefs, then yes, they have a problem. But I don't think we can give up on that idea. Now, the general critique, according to people like Patrick Deneen, liberalism is responsible for everything that has gone on in the modern world. And what is most amazing about his work is all the factors that he omits in his description of the rise of modernity, like the Protestant Reformation, which is perhaps the truest source of individualism, the individual and his God. The Protestants invented that singular pronoun, the gathered congregation, the critique of hierarchy. All that comes from the religious side, not from secular liberal ideology. And then they have to deal with, and Deneen just doesn't talk about it, that one crucial aspect of individualism, which also begins in primitive forms among the Protestant radicals, is the equality of women, a genuine equality of women. The end of the patriarchal regime is going to change the way families live and the way familial life is organized. And they continually invoke the traditional family, which has been destroyed by liberalism, without acknowledging, since they are not prepared to say that women are not equals, they're not prepared to say that. By the way, I don't think the word equality appears in the index of Patrick Deneen's first book. <laughs> so maybe they're not prepared to acknowledge that women are equals, but yes, that's a crucial cause of the changes that we are living through and sometimes unhappy about and sometimes very proud of. And then there is the scientific revolution, which has transformed life and which is not the product of liberalism. So it isn't a useful analysis, I think. And then the things they criticize are things that you and I might criticize. I mean, they are hostile to gross disparities of wealth, the post-liberals. They believe in a welfare state for the many, organized by the few. <laughs> I don't think what we need is a post-liberalism. We need a better version of liberal democracy and liberal social democracy. 
Well, let me ask you the most cliche question that everybody's been asked in one way or another for the last 30 years, but I think it is raised by what you were saying, which is that you know, one problem with the post-liberals is that they do the classic conjuring trick of anybody who attacks in a tradition of somehow overlooking all of the good things that actually flow from it and blaming all of the ills in current society. And there's always plenty of ills to go around on that same tradition. And so, you know, there's some persuasive descriptions of real social problems, and they're all somehow associated with a lot of hand-waving with the idea of liberalism. And so then, you know, you are left with the idea that if only you subtracted liberalism from the world, everything would be great. But the second problem, which stems from the first, of course, that when you look in a little bit more detail, is absolutely unclear what that new society would look like. One of the things that strikes me is that a lot of the post-liberals are either Catholics, often Catholic converts, and they seem to think that, you know, this would be a majoritarian society in which we elect few or perhaps the democratic many impose their religious values on the rest of society in the name of a higher good or in the name of what we sometimes explicitly say, the highest good. But you know, it's an irksome fact, both that virtually all of the societies in which they operate have become very secular, and that Catholics in particular are a minority in the United States. And so it's very, very hard to actually make heads or tails of what it is that this post-liberal society would look like. But that raises the cliched question of whether there was more to Francis Fukuyama's argument about the end of history than, you know, a thousand sneering op-eds want to acknowledge, which is the idea that these twin values of liberalism and democracy, and you call yourself a liberal democrat in that sense in the course of this conversation, do seem to remain more legitimate than the alternatives. But when you're looking for a political system that has some amount of appeal around the globe, even though not every person agrees with it, and even though certainly it doesn't rule in every corner of the world, there still does not appear to be an obvious competitor ideology. And the travails of opposed liberals in making up a competitor ideology only seems to underline the point. So is that combination of individual freedom and collective self-government something that, for better or worse, we're stuck with? Or do you expect fundamental ideological shifts in the next decades or centuries or millennia where we will look back at that system as a strange and interesting social reality of a bygone era that has thoroughly been displaced by other kinds of ideals. I hope we're stuck with liberal democracy. What emerges from Deneen's second book, which I've only looked through, is the idea that there is a, around the world a populist revolt against liberalism it is badly led by people like Donald Trump, but they believe that they can seize it and lead it into political power for the aristoi, for the few intelligent, well-educated, traditionally committed people. They think they can be empowered by the populist impulse. And they're riding a tiger, obviously, and I don't see... Uh, success. But what is most striking about their commitment to what they call classical and Christian values, constantly reiterated in their books, is that they never give us a concrete description of the society in which they think those values prevailed. And it would be, in the classical case, a society of slavery and war. It would be a society of persecution of heretics, the Inquisition, the pogroms of the Crusades against Jews and then Muslims, deep poverty, a hierarchy that is not committed to classical and Christian values at all. They never talk about that. They never talk about the society to which they look back. They just read Aristotle and Aquinas. They aren't doing social history. They probably don't believe in social history. I want to shift and ask you about a different part of a political spectrum, but in some ways you know more intimately and you know better. You've been a leading voice of the American left for many decades. What do you think is 
the state of the American left at the moment? And how do you feel about the shift that, in my mind at least, has taken place over the last three or four decades, and particularly over the last 10 years, from a politics that tends to uh, focus on questions of economics and social class to a politics that tends to focus on questions of sexual, racial, and gender identity. Let's look at the history of the last 70 years of leftist endeavor. The civil rights movement was obviously a very important movement in American history, and it didn't win complete victories. It won partial victories, but real victories. The state of Black people in the United States today is significantly different from what it was 70 years ago. The women's movement has won real victories. The role of women in politics and economics in the United States today is significantly different than it was 70 years ago. Gay rights have been established in law. The victory's incomplete, but still, we are far, far from where we were. Okay, those are significant victories. And yet, in the course of winning those victories, America has become a less egalitarian society. And that's the great paradox of the contemporary left. By giving up on class and on the old social democratic programs, by pursuing particular versions of inequality and oppression, which needed to be pursued, we have somehow created or participated in the creation of a less egalitarian society. And we need to think through how that happened and why that has happened. And we have not begun a serious think through of that. I think there are people on the left who would like to go back to the old social economic left program. President Biden's Build Back Better was a version of New Deal politics. In addressing this paradox of identity politics successes and social economic failures, the left has gotten somehow diverted into this search for ideological purity on all of the identitarian issues. I don't fully understand where that comes from, but it has definitely produced on many of our campuses an illiberal left and not a left that can ever be effective in American politics. I'm not sure I could give you a definition any more than Ron DeSantis can of what woke means, but it does seem to carry the connotation of I am more purely committed, I am more strongly committed to this or that than you are, and you'd better measure up to my commitments. And that's not an attractive politics. There's a very simple point that your way of framing this made me think of. And somehow I'd never quite thought about it in those terms, which is that you know, when you go back to America of 1960, it's an economically unequal society, and it is a society that treats various minority groups in very bad ways. But relatively speaking, certainly compared to today, it had a lot more economic equality and much, 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 much worse treatment of various minorities. And yet at the time, the dominating politics was one that was talking to economic inequality and that was trying to build that cross-identity coalition on behalf of those who were less affluent. And then you fast forward to today, and you're in a society in which undoubtedly there's continuing injustices towards certain minority groups, and there's a lot of inequality. But compared to 60 years ago, it's quite clear that the standing of various minorities has become vastly better, has improved in tremendous ways, while economic inequality has worsened. And yet today, the dominant mode of sort of what makes the left tick and where the heart of our politics as a whole gets racing more quickly is about those forms of equality across various dimensions of identity rather than of social class. There's something really paradoxical about that, isn't there? 
Yes, it is. It is the paradox of the contemporary left. I find it hard to understand the unwillingness of some of the identitarian leftists to confront the paradox, to worry about it, because it seems such an obvious problem for any left politics. I want to call on your experience for a moment, if I may. When I despair about the state of parts of the left today, people who I think at times are willing to embrace liberal methods and sometimes liberal goals in the name of you know what they claim to be left-wing ideals, people who are willing to be partisan in a way that makes them you know defend bad action on their own side, people who are intellectually cowardly, who are going along with a consensus that seems silly or asinine because they don't you know, want to risk standing apart from the tribe. I actually find it simultaneously scary, but also comforting to look back at the history of the left. And I'm somebody who comes from a left-wing tradition, who in many ways continues to think of myself as left-wing, and recognize that it's always been the case, that when you read George Orwell, you know, and he goes to a meeting of Penn, and I suppose it must have been the late 40s, he complains that not a single person talks about threats to free speech in the Soviet Union. And you read about the history of the British Labour Party in the second half of the 20th century, and there was always a strongly illiberal strain that had deep sympathy for, you know, any enemy of the West, no matter how liberal that enemy was. And so I guess the question I have for you is, is this just an illiberal temptation that periodically rears its head on the left? Is there something new about today's moment? Is today worse than past moments where, at least in the history of the American left? How do we think about those illiberal instincts that are so prominently on view today in conversation with the history of these temptations in the United States and beyond? Well, there have always been illiberal leftists from the beginning. Marx may have been the first, always. And there have always been liberal or anarchist or independent leftists opposed to the authoritarianism of many leftist movements. It's a fight. It has always gone on. I don't see it ending anytime soon. I do think there were the glory years right after World War II, the glory years of social democracy, which was also generally a liberal politics. Clement Attlee was not an authoritarian figure. I like to think of some of those social democrats who came after some towering figure like Willie Brandt after Adenauer or Clement Attlee after Churchill. There is a tendency to celebrate the heroic figures, and not to understand the value of the people who come after, the athletes of the world. But that was a glory time, and we, for various reasons, have lost that moment and can't figure out how to get it back. I think some of the Biden people did really intended to get it back, but they didn't have anything like the political support in Congress even perhaps in the party. So I think it's very, very important for the left. And this was the original purpose of Dissent Magazine. It is important for the left to reckon with its own authoritarianism, its own history of authoritarianism. And it is a historical reckoning, and then it involves contemporary battles. The authoritarian tendency, the belief that I am ideologically correct and you aren't. I know the course of history and you don't. I understand why party discipline is necessary and you don't. That is a permanent tendency. It goes along with individual examples of self-righteousness and, and a certain kind of collective narcissism, but you just have to be against it. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of interesting topics and we've been lamenting for at least the second half of the conversation, various ideological developments. What is it that makes you hopeful if in 2050 or 2100, some historian were to sit down and write a positive story of you know, how America and perhaps the world transformed 
over the course of the 21st century? What do you think the main plot points in that history would be? What would need to happen for us to live up more fully to some of the ideals that you've written so eloquently about? I think it's a problem of old age to think that better times lay behind us. Uh, I am greatly encouraged by the participation of young people in environmental politics. I think that may be the absolutely crucial politics of our time, of the next decades, and crucial not only because of the impending ecological disasters, but also because if those disasters come, there is likely to be a very, very strong authoritarian response, because that's the way one responds to crisis. You need strong leaders, strong government. And I think we have only a decade, two decades, in which to establish some kind of democratic control over the environment before we face crises which will encourage authoritarian responses. So I greatly value every young person I meet who is talking about, thinking about, working on the environment. And then there are a lot of local or small-scale political efforts on things like mass incarceration or helping immigrants. I know young people who volunteer to collect furniture and resources for immigrant families to help set them up comfortably in the United States. And I know young people who are helping prisoners after they are released to return to ordinary civil society. There is a lot of goodwill among America's young. It has not found a national political expression. I confess, I thought the environmental movement would be a national or international movement of much larger scope than it actually is today. But that's where I would look for hope. That's where I think the crucial work has to be done. Michael Walter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.